little boy and his mom were getting ready to come to church on a Sunday morning, and the mom gave the boy a $5 bill, and she said, now this is for the offering today, just as the offering plates pass, just give that money to the offering plate, and so he put it in his pocket, church time came, worship going on, and offering time, the plate was passed, and and he didn't put the $5 bill in the offering plate. He kept it in his pocket. And the mother's sitting next to him, and she's watching and just can't believe that uh, her five-year-old boy here hadn't done what she'd told him to do. And, and so she was aggravated with him, but she didn't want to cause a scene right there in church. And so she thought, I'll just have a talk with him after church is over. And uh, so as church ended, they're going out the door, the preacher's there shaking hands with everybody as they go out the door, and he grabs that $5 bill, the little boy does, and he gives it to the preacher as he's going out the door, and the preacher's kind of taken back by surprise, what, what's this? And he goes, well, my mom told me to put this in the offering plate, but I didn't. I wanted to give it to you because I've heard her say several times, you're the poorest preacher she's ever heard. <laughs> boy. Tomorrow marks a very big day for our church as VBS kicks off. Maybe you've noticed the theme for the week. It's some assembly required. Some assembly required. As I heard that theme, my mind went back to several years ago when we had a a similar kind of theme to our vacation Bible school, it was God is not finished with me yet. Maybe you remember that as well. That's so true. There is some assembly required. Our growth in Jesus is not something that happens overnight. It's a process. It's a work that takes place over a lifetime. God doing His work in us, us humbling ourselves... God molding us and breaking us, assembling us. That was true even for Jesus' disciples. They had been with Him for three years now, and still they had so many rough edges that needed filed off. The problem was, their time with Jesus was almost finished. In fact, just a matter of a few hours, Jesus was going to be taken away from them. He would be arrested, and soon He would be put to death. By this time, it's Thursday evening in that final week of Jesus' life. A lot of things have been happening during these last few days. Jesus has spent quite a bit of time in the temple teaching. He has had several run-ins with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have tried their best to stump him with their questions, but they have been unable to do so. His wisdom and knowledge of the Scripture far out exceeded theirs. And they walked away from those scuffles with Jesus, just looking rather foolish in the eyes of the people. It was embarrassing to them. They were angry over this. In fact, he had the audacity to pronounce seven woes upon them, which exposed their hypocrisy to the people. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 23. The tension between Jesus and the Pharisees was so thick 
that you could almost cut it with a knife. They hated him. They wanted him dead. So when Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' twelve disciples, came to them and was willing to hand him over to them, they were more than willing to work a deal with Judas and pay him 30 pieces of silver. Now you do know 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave, according to the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 21 verse 32 tells us that. Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, was betrayed for the meager price of a slave. But all of this was going just according to God's plan. Did you know that it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver? Psalms 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That prophecy written by David was was written 1,000 years before Jesus was here. Then in Zechariah chapter 11 verse 12, that particular verse mentions the 30 pieces of silver as the exact betrayal price. That scripture was written over 500 years before the Messiah. Someone might ask, how did God know? Well, God knows all things. He is in control. We are not in control. We may think that we are in control. We may think that we know what is going to happen tomorrow. We're going to do this tomorrow, and we're going to do that tomorrow. But those those plans can change so very quickly. Only God is in control, and all that was going on in that final week of Jesus' life was just according to plan. Arrangements were made for Jesus to eat the Passover meal in an with his disciples. They had secured an upper room. As they entered into that room, the the disciples were each one trying to find a place around the table, and there arose an old familiar argument among them. You remember what the argument was? Yeah, which of us is the favorite? Which of us is the greatest to Jesus? Probably this argument was happening as they each one were scurrying around trying to get the best seat around the table. Who's going to get the seat of honor next to Jesus? They had completely forgotten Jesus' teaching from six months earlier while they were at the house of a Pharisee. Luke chapter 14 records that for us. Maybe you remember it. Jesus was saying to them, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor, lest someone more important than you has been invited, and they come in, and in the presence of everyone, the master say to you, you have to get up out of your seat and go to a lower seat. Well, how embarrassing would that be? Jesus is saying to them, Friend, when you're invited to a wedding feast, sit in a lower seat. 
And then when the master comes in and he sees you sitting in a low seat, then in the presence of all, he will say to you, friend, get up and move to a higher seat. And you will have honor in the sight of everyone. He ended that saying by this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The disciples had forgotten All about that teaching. For as they were entering into that upper room, they're scurrying for the best seat, and each one of them have a a reason in their own mind as to why they deserve the seat of honor. Guess who got the seat of honor? Judas Iscariot did. The betrayer. He was seated next to Jesus on his left. Now, I've explained this to you before, but for the benefit of those maybe who are new or in case you have forgotten, I'll share with you how this room might have been laid out. I have a a diagram for you, and actually I saw this morning in the first service the diagram is wrong. I should have looked at it. There should be a table here at the bottom of the U, okay, because there's three tables in this room. And the disciples and Jesus are sitting around the table, but understand these tables are not the kinds of tables that you and I sit at when we get in our chair and we scoot up underneath the table and we eat our food for dinner. That, these, these were not those kinds of tables. These tables were about six to eight inches off the ground. And those who are around the table are reclining on their left elbow... Their chest is up next to the table. They use their right arm to eat from the table the food that is there. And they actually are leaning against one another. Their feet are away from the table. So when it says that John, the beloved disciple, was leaning on the breast of Jesus, or he was laying back on Jesus' bosom, as some of your Bibles may say, that's what that's an accurate description that's why some of the conversation that was taking place in this upper room around the table was was not privy to all of those who are around the table the conversation between John and Jesus that later takes place the conversation between Jesus and Judas that later takes place the others were not hearing this because they're whispering to one another Jesus is laying up against the breast of Judas. John is laying up against the breast of Jesus. And when they're talking to one another, they're just turning their head and whispering to each other. And that's why at some point here, after Jesus has made an announcement that one of the twelve is going to betray him, Peter, who is across the room... At the other table, the opposite side of what Jesus is, Peter is beckoning to John. He's gesturing to John, saying to him, ask him who it is that is going to betray him. Find out for us, John. So you see, Jesus, where he's seated, Next to him, on his left, is Judas, which is the seat of honor in this room. 
John is next to Jesus. Peter is across the room. Before all of this happens, though, before all of this this whispering going on between John and and Jesus and, and Jesus and Judas, there's this argument that has been taking place as they have come into the room. You get the sense that every one of these fellows is involved in the argument. I am sure that Jesus is exasperated with, with their childishness. So as this argument carries on, Jesus quietly gets up from his seat and, and the scripture says that he takes off his outer garment All that he has on probably at this point is a loincloth. He is about to give them a lesson that they will never forget. In the past, he has got after them for such self-centeredness. But this time, he doesn't say a word. He just shows them by example what it means to be a selfless, servant-minded Person. John 13 says that he takes a towel and he girds himself about with that towel. In other words, he wraps the towel around his waist. He then takes a, a basin uh, and he fills it with water and he begins to wash the disciples' feet one by one. 24 feet. 120 toes. toes. He, he cleanses each of them. He then dries those disciples' feet off with the towel that is wrapped about him. Can you imagine, if you can put yourself in the room for just a moment, can you imagine how that argument quickly died down as they each saw what their master was doing? All of a sudden, you could hear a pin drop in that room. This was the job of a hired servant. But no one had arranged for that. And certainly none of the disciples had volunteered for filling this role. The thought had not even crossed their mind. They were fighting over who deserved the seat of honor. They weren't thinking about a basin of water and washing each other's feet. I'm thinking surely there was a deep conviction that suddenly was piercing each of their hearts as they were seeing Jesus, the Master, doing the work of a slave. And I would imagine that their heads are hanging low and the only sound that could be heard in that room was the splashing of water on dirty feet. And things got a little bit louder, though, as Jesus came to Peter and was to wash his feet. Peter refused. He said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, Peter, but someday you will. And Peter protested. He said, no, you will never, ever wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, unless I wash you, you will not belong to me, Peter. Do you remember Peter's response? Peter said, don't just wash my feet then, Lord. Wash my hands and wash my head. In other words, give me a whole bath, Lord. I want to belong to you. And think about this. Jesus washed even the feet of Judas. 
Maybe it was one last effort to show love to Judas. He was giving him one last chance. Maybe that's what was going on in the mind of Judas or in the mind of Jesus. I'm trying to think, if I had been Jesus, I'm thinking I wouldn't have been so loving towards Judas. at, At best, I would have passed by him with a glare on my face. At worst, I might would have taken those toes and twisted them with a pair of pliers. (laughs) Jesus already knew what's going on. He knows Judas is going to be the one to betray Him. He knows that the deal has already been made. Maybe even the, the money is in His pocket jingling. And yet Jesus takes the time to wash the feet of Judas. What can we learn from all of this? There's two lessons I want to share with you today. The first lesson would be this. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. Let that sink into your mind for just a moment. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. That's a different philosophy than what we are taught by the world these days. The world teaches us that the more people we have who are serving us, then the greater we are. But that's not how greatness is measured in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness is measured in the kingdom by how many people you are serving. So let me ask you, are you serving or are you one who is waiting to be served? Jesus set the example for us. He got up from the table and He washed His disciples' feet and then He said, As I have done this to you, so you do for others. I wonder what kind of a difference it would make in the home if each of us had a mindset of being a servant. I can't help but think that it would make a major difference in our marriages that are represented here if each husband and if each wife would have this mindset of what can I do to serve my partner. Instead of us standing back and thinking, you know, I need to be the one being served, if we could just have the mindset of I want to serve my partner. Here, what can I do for you? No, no, let me do for you. And if both of them are trying to outdo one another in service, don't you think that's going to make a difference in that marriage relationship? That would be a pretty exciting marriage to be a part of. And guess who would be watching as that plays out in the marriage relationship? The kids would be watching. And they're learning from mom and dad that it's not we sit back and wait for somebody to serve us. Rather, I'm to be about serving one another. And who knows, maybe the siblings would start serving each other in the home. Wouldn't that be great? And as the kids grow up and they get to be marrying age and they they, uh, tie the knot with that person whom they love, maybe they'll be servant-minded too because they learned it from mom and they learned it from dad in the home that we are to serve each other. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. Would you say that with me? The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. 
We honor the Father through this servant spirit that I'm talking about. We make Him happy. We please Him as we take up the towel and the basin of water. I wonder what kind of difference this mindset would make in our workplace. If we had in the workplace this spirit of service, and instead of doing only what is expected of us, if we would be willing to do more than what is expected of us, and we do it with a spirit of joy and gladness. It's in those moments that we make the biggest impact on people, and our greatest witness can be seen. You see, we need to make sure we're doing this for His glory. That we are giving honor to Him. That we are not trying to build a name for ourselves. We're not trying to impress people. We are simply trying to be a servant to His glory and to His honor. And we're doing it because He's made a difference in our life. He has transformed us into His likeness. We want to be like Him, not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. Our church has so many wonderful servants, and I could, I could just name them one by one by one. There were, there were a few this week that came to my mind. There's, there's a couple in the, in the early church service Lester and Ruth Waring, you who have been around here for a number of years will know Lester and Ruth. Our church service, the first service, starts at 9 o'clock. Lester and Ruth get here every Sunday at 6.30 a.m. to unlock the doors, turn all the lights on, they deliver Sunday school papers around. There's bulletins that you, you have handed to you as you come in the door. And oftentimes there's two, three, four inserts in those bulletins. During those early hours, Lester and Ruth are here and some of their family members. And they're stuffing the bulletins with those inserts. Just having a servant spirit. They don't do it to get recognized. Oftentimes they're, they're, it's a thankless job but they do it to the glory of God, to His honor, and it reminds me that the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. I was thinking of Troy and Tanya Pyatt, and Marcy was telling me they've got some folks who are helping them, but with the communion. They, 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 every week they gather midweek and they prepare the communion trays. And they... Put the juice in the, in the cups and the, the bread in the trays. and You know, they're faithful about that. If they missed one Sunday, we'd all know about it, wouldn't we? Because we'd be, where's, where's the communion? Every single one of us would know about that. But because they're faithful, we have that for us every week. They come back midweek. They clean the, clean the trays up. They do it to the glory of God. They're servants. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. Terry Campbell takes care of our church sign. Whether it's, whether it's in the heat or in the cold, whether it's in the, the, the snow or in the rain, whatever the temperature, whatever the conditions of the weather is, she is out there and she is changing the wording on the sign every week. She comes up with those little sayings and, and those sayings get the attention of those who pass by on the road. 
She's not doing that for recognition. In fact, it's oftentimes a thankless job, but she's doing it to His glory and to His honor, and the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. And I could go on and on this morning. Just I could mention names, I could, could mention groups of people, those who serve in the nursery way after their kids are, are older than what the nursery is, those who serve in vacation Bible school even after their kids are gone from the home, those who make... Uh, food for funeral dinners, servants, people who are great in the kingdom of God. And they do it not to be thanked by men, but they do it to the glory and honor of God. And they understand that one day He's going to receive us unto Himself and He will reward us for our faithful service. Thankfully, that service of ours to Him goes way beyond these church walls. Because some of you, maybe your service to the Lord is in, through your job. And some of your service to the Lord is in your community service. And some of your service to the Lord is as you treat your neighbor with love and kindness. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. Let me give to you a second lesson from this text. There is a blessing for the one who serves. John chapter 13, verse 17, Jesus said this, after He had washed His disciples' feet, He stood up, and this is what He said to them, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Please understand this. Joy comes from serving. So much more than from being served. That's why Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. When we get out of ourselves and we are putting others first and we're putting Him first, that brings a blessing to us. It brings joy to our heart. Could I share with you an experience that I, that I, I went through just recently? experiencing the truth of this verse, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn this morning at all. Please don't think that that that's what I'm doing. I just want to share the truth of this Scripture that I've experienced recently. It was just a couple of mornings after my dad had passed away. I walked into his and mom's bedroom... And my mom was standing there and with my brother Tom. And I walked up and she was giving to him a pocket knife of my dad's. And you, you need to know, my dad was one who carried a pocket knife every day. All day long it would be in his pocket. And he'd get that out and he'd use it for whatever reason. But he was a pocket knife guy. And she was giving to him one of his pocket knives. And then she turned to me and she said, Kevin, I think your dad would like for you to have this. And, and it was the one pocket knife left in her hand. And I gladly received that. And I was so thankful. I put it in my pocket and I carried it with me the rest of that day. The family was, was departing that evening. 
And we had taken some time to go as a family into my dad's detached garage. It's, it's a, a barn, actually. And, and inside of that barn was all of his tools. And it was our purpose as a family to be there. And we were giving the grandkids an opportunity to look and find a tool of my of my dad's, their grandpa, that they could take and have that as a remembrance of their papa. And, uh, you know, some of them were taking a screwdriver and another was taking a wrench and, and a pair of pliers and a pair of loppers or just some of his tools. They were taking them as a remembrance of him. And, and my brother and my sister and I, we were looking for a tool to have as a remembrance of him. And my sister walked up to me and she said, you know, I, I really don't, I don't need a tool. I, I won't get use out of a tool. You know, what I'd really like to have is one of dad's pocket knives. And I got a big lump in my throat. And I said, well, why don't you go ask mom if she's got a pocket knife for you. And I, I, I went ahead and said, you know, Debbie, I, I want you to know, this morning, Mom gave Tom and I a pocket knife of his. And I don't know if, he, if she's got more. But go ask her. And so she turned and she went in a beeline, right, to Mom to ask. And I'm standing back watching and she goes, she asks, Does, do you, I'd like to have one of Dad's pocket knives. Do you have any? And I saw my mom shake her head no. And then I heard the Holy Spirit talking to me. And I knew exactly what he wanted me to do at that moment. And I have to tell you, I really didn't want to do that. But uh, the direction was so clear from him. I went up to my sister and I reached into my pocket and I pulled out that pocket knife and I said, Debbie, I want you to have this. And she said, oh no, Kevin. And we stood there and we just went back and forth and I was not going to lose that argument. And I insisted. I said, I want you to have this. And she took it. And as she took it from my hand, we embraced one another and we cried. Both of us just cried. And I said, I love you so much. And she said that to me. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I felt so much joy in my heart that I could give to her such a special gift. There is great joy in giving and serving, and I experienced it at that moment. But you know, you, this, this is how God so often works. When we give, He gives back to us. And later that evening, as we were in the house, Mom had been in the drawer and guess what she found? She found two more pocket knives. And she came to me 
And she said, your choice of one of these pocket knives. I'll never forget that. When we take on the role of a servant, the blessing will be ours. There is joy that comes from serving, from giving. And I know this week, every single one of us here, no one's left out. Every single one of us here are going to have opportunities to serve somebody this week. Whether it be in the home, whether it be in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in the community, at Walmart, you're going to have an opportunity. In the grocery store, you're going to have an opportunity to serve somebody. And so let's have our eyes open. Let's have our hearts open and our minds open. Let's be willing to serve our neighbor. And as we serve, as we begin to develop this mindset and we take on this role in our life, we become great in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. God, thank You. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus, who washed the feet of His disciples. And He has taught us how to serve one another. And so help us to be that servant. And we pray this in Jesus' name.